All right. Welcome back, everybody. This is The Social Brain, episode 21. Uh, and today we're going to be talking about uh, visualization. So the idea of bringing kind of mental images to mind, what those can do for us, what those can do for our goals, for our health, uh, well-being, all of that kind of stuff. So uh, I'm Taylor Guthrie. I run the channel Cellular Republic. And this is my co-host, Andrew Cooper Sansone. Uh, he runs Sense of Mind. And together we kind of do this thing called the social brain. Uh, and I'm going to let him kind of get us started. All right. Um, yeah. So as Taylor said, we're kind of talking about visualization and mental imagery and I think just to kind of center this conversation, I just want to like emphasize that we spend so much time inside our own heads just in everyday life. Like we're thinking, maybe remembering, reminiscing, ruminating over stuff. We're thinking about the future, predicting, imagining, you know, alternative scenarios or alternative worlds. Um, and No, we lost him in the middle of his speech. <laughs> All of this is happening, of course, as a result. Um, I got you back. <laughs> okay. All right. I'm not sure who went off or what, but uh, uh, anyway, so this is all occurring as a result of brain activity, right? And the truth is that we can learn to kind of direct or influence this, this brain activity through our experience, through our behavior, our control. And this can help us to like reshape our brains and, you know, increase, enhance our abilities and even like become better versions of ourselves. There are some caveats to this that we're going to be talking about. We don't want to come off as too like woo or like the secret <laughs> or anything. <laughs> I think we're having some connection issues. Sorry, everybody. Yeah, and to kind of piggyback on what Andrew was just saying is that we really want to kind of uh, settle all of this in uh, in the science, in the, in the neuroscience, in the reality of it, and uh, what what is it that visualization actually is, what it's doing for us. Uh, let's see if Andrew comes back here in just a minute. Because there are limitations. There are real limitations to this. Okay. All right. Sorry for the technical <laughs> difficulties, everyone. Um, but anyway, the, yeah, we're talking about visualization and mental imagery and using this to change our brains, change our futures, really change the uh, our, our ability to engage in certain skills to be able to, I'm sorry, this must be, uh, it seems like it's coming from my end, just having some connection issues. Um, yeah, maybe no I'll worries. just, I'll hand it off to you, Taylor, and see if I can, I can uh, deal with this. Yeah. So I, I think kind of, again, piggybacking on what Andrew was just saying is that we have this, this really rich mental world as humans. We're able to to really take advantage of a lot of the high order perceptions that we have. And it's, I think, really important to note that this whole process of mental visualization, of perception in general, is a building process. 
Uh, we are sensing the world through these kind of sensory receptors that we have in our eyes, in our skin, in our nose and ears and everything. Uh, and those are just picking up very simple parts of the environment, uh, lines and edges and frequencies of sounds. And the whole th process of perception uh, is this building process where we're taking a lot of these kind of lines and edges and sounds and we're putting th them together into objects. And what's really cool as humans is that we have the ability to, to really recognize and name objects, uh, to, to go through the world and be able to, to really kind of understand how our context affects us. Uh, and because of that, because we have these high order perceptions of the world, we can also turn those on in our head. We can use them as mental images in place of something that's out there in reality. Uh, and so like Andrew was saying, as we kind of got started, is that what we're talking about is not this kind of woo-woo, visualize your future, visualize success kind of thing. Uh, it's really about a lot of the, the really interesting science that's gone into trying to understand how it is that our mind actually creates these mental objects. I mean, this is something that's been talked about in philosophy for thousands of years. Like, what is it that's going on in our head when we're imagining? And how is that different than reality? Uh, and I think what we're really going to get into that's really cool in this episode uh, is the science that really dives into that distinction of how the brain works, how it creates these things and what they can actually do for us. Yeah. Okay. I think my connection's better now. So yeah, thank you. Um, all right. Yeah, that is, that is absolutely what we're talking about. And um, yeah, so I guess we can just kind of, kind of get into this and talk about what, what we mean by these terms that we're going to be using, like imagery and visual imagery, motor imagery, visualization, um, because these might have kind of different meanings in colloquial usage as opposed to kind of the scientific meaning that we are going to be talking mostly about. So like we're really mostly going to be talking about visual imagery and motor imagery and visualization. So visual imagery is pretty straightforward. It's basically the, it's like mental imagery. So a, a sort of inner perceptual experience in the absence of sensory input um, that uh, involves like having actual visual images in mind. So um, this we'll talk about kind of how that comes about in the brain, but just pretty straightforward, just, uh, thinking about kind of having these, these visual, um, images in mind that are not, uh, coming from the outside world. Um, and then motor imagery, or I guess I'll, I'll talk about visualization first. So visualization is also kind of a, a technical term. Um, and it's, uh, the process of creating a visual image in one's mind or mentally rehearsing a planned movement in order to learn skills or enhance performance. So while it has the word visual in it, it can also uh, refer to this rehearsing a planned movement. Or um, so, so that's related to this other term, motor imagery, um, which is kind of a state where the representation of a motor act is internally rehearsed in our working memory in our minds without any overt motor output. So these are pretty straightforward terms when you um, get a hold of them, but I think that visualization can be a little bit, a uh, little weird because it just sounds like it's purely visual, but it's can also involve this kind of motor imagery that I just talked about. And I, I think this is an important distinction because uh, like Andrew said, we're, we're gonna be talking a lot about visual imagery, but imagery in general is, 
the act of turning on perceptions in the absence of sensory information. And this can be from any of our senses, right? We can turn on smells, right? When you have a memory of like those cookies that your grandma was baking when you were young, right? That is a form of mental imagery. So is closing your eyes and imagining that the sun is beating down on you. You can feel the heat of the sun. You can imagine touching the outside of of like a coarse lemon and what that feels like. You can imagine biting into that lemon and what that tastes like, right? All of these are experiences that as I was describing them, you were probably able to create some type of kind of mental reenactment of what that actually feels like to go through that. And that's really powerful. Uh, I think that's really important to note here is that uh, we've talked a lot in this show about how the body doesn't speak English, how like we get so caught up in trying to understand everything in these kind of English cognitive terms. What I think the body really understands, what our kind of the, the language that, that communicates meaning to the body is really through imagery because that's what the body experiences, right? We're going through the world, we're experiencing smells and tastes and touch and all of this kind of stuff. And that's how the body knows whether it's safe or whether it's not safe. And uh, there's really interesting things that can be used uh, with this, this imagery for recontextualizing things. Uh, but one of the things that I think Andrew really hinted at that's uh, really big in the visualization world is getting better at stuff, <clears throat> is that we have this ability to rehearse to like, I don't have to go out and swing the golf club a million times. I can do it in my head. And we'll talk about like, you still need to swing the golf club. Like it's important to have some physical portion of it. Uh, but uh, we've talked before on the show about like mirror neurons and all of these kind of things. We can create this entire perceptual experience in our head and help to rewire and kind of like Andrew said, kind of reshape the brain, reshape the circuits so that next time we do that thing, it's more efficient. Yeah, that's that's a great point. That's like a good kind of overview of where we're going. And um, maybe we should kind of dive into how how this works in the brain, uh, what we kind of know about that. Um, so one thing kind of one one principle to keep in mind throughout all this is that imagery like imagined experiences have a kind of temporal proportionality to real experiences. So what I mean by that is how long it takes to visualize something is proportional to how complex the image is. Or um, you know, if you're, there are experiments showing that if people are imagining tracing between two locations on a map, the time it takes them to trace, uh, mentally trace those is proportional to how far away those points are on the map. So it's not uh, it's not necessarily the, the exact same amount of time that it takes, uh, but it's kind of a proportional, um, there's a proportionality there. And I'm mentioning that because this was some of the kind of the earliest work on mental imagery had to do with these response times and finding that there is this correlation between the real experience and the imagined experience in terms of how long uh, it takes to imagine that. And this is, uh, I, I don't want this to be understated because it sounds kind of obvious uh, in a way, but uh, the history of cognitive science is, is really cool. So there was a person named Coslin that did a lot of these experiments. He started them in grad school, actually, which is kind of cool. He had this like groundbreaking study. Uh, but we in kind of philosophy over thousands of years have been trying to figure out like how mental imagery works. 
And this was the first time that we were actually like mapping out the, the kind of limitations of what we're actually able to do in our mind's eye, that there's actually a, a temporal limit in our mind that we can't just like stop time and create all of these fantastic imaginations in our head that have nothing to do with reality, that what's going on in our head is, is kind of a mirror of what's happened in the real world. And like these original studies that were done by Coslin were, were literally like, okay, I want you to imagine an airplane, right? And I want you to start at the tail of the airplane. And then I want you to tell me what the front of the airplane looks like. And they would, it would take them a little bit of time to, to start at the tail and then think about the, the front of the airplane. And then he said, now I want you to start at the tail, but now go to the wing. And there's kind of this, this mental scanning that happens, right? Like in your mind's eye, you start at the tail and then you move your way through the airplane to the front. Uh, and it showed that like we, as we're going through these perceptual experiences, these imaginative experiences, they're almost just like what we would do with a real object. If we had a real airplane that we were holding, some toy airplane, and we were starting at one end, going to the other, there would be a certain amount of time for our eyes to scan that. And there's something going on in our head that's very similar. That we, and this is the way that I kind of see this, is that our brain is able to manipulate what it's already seen and done. Because these perceptions that we're working with are perceptions that are kind of mirror images of things that we've experienced, things that we've seen, right? Uh, and there's some exceptions, like you can get creative and you can like put different blobs together. But most of what you're able to imagine, you have some type of real thing that you can tie it to in the real world. Uh, and even if you get creative and you create something new in your mind's eye, it's still a collection of shapes and things that you've seen before. You can't just like imagine nothing. Right. Yeah. So it just I, I think the important thing here is that what these early cognitive experiments did without looking at the brain at all, I mean, they were just looking at reaction time, which is really cool, right? Just like start here, move to here, just like just imagine things, push a button when you get to the end of it. And they were able to map out like, okay, the brain is going through some type of computation as it's creating this mental image. And there's there's restrictions to that. And I think that's really important as we move through the conversation. Yeah, and it, it definitely has to do with the kind of neuroimaging work that has been done on mental imagery as well. So mm -hmm. I think a good way to think about this is that mental imagery is kind of like a low resolution sort of simulation of real perception or action or both. Uh, without, Like we said, without any real sensory input or motor output, um, but there are many of the same brain regions involved. So if you're talking about visualizing something visual to have using visual imagery, there's going to be involvement of the visual cortex, the visual cortices. Um, and we'll kind of maybe get into a little bit of the nitty gritty of, of the work that's been done around the difference between uh, mental imagery and regular perception. But I think that's really good to keep in mind that it's not like there's this other brain region that comes online that's like the mental imagery or the motor imagery region, the simulation region. No, it's like your brain is using the same faculties that it uses for real perception or real um, motor movements and just sort of running, using those as kind of a, a simulation uh, to see what would happen in real life or to, to practice uh, a motor act um, in the head. 
And I think something that that's really interesting about that, right, is that you, you know the brain is is in this dark cavernous skull. The brain doesn't actually see anything, right? The brain doesn't hear anything. It doesn't taste anything or smell anything. All it knows are electrical impulses, right? You have these uh, the the tongue turns taste receptor things into electrical activity. The ears turn sound into electricity or like pressure waves into electricity, right? All the brain is doing is making sense of patterns of information. And this whole building process of perception when you're seeing something, we've now as humans developed this ability to, uh, they call it clamping in like the, the neuroscience world, but uh, we've been able to disconnect the perception from the senses. We're able to say like, okay, I've seen a microphone before. I've seen a water bottle before. Now I'm going to turn on that object, that pattern of activity without having to activate any of the senses. Um, and it shows, and what Andrew was saying is that we're actually turning on the, the same, pretty much almost the same circuitry that would be on when we were actually looking at a water bottle. Uh, and there's even there's been studies that uh, like simpler ones like look at an X, imagine an X and like very similar activity between looking at an X on a screen and imagining an X, a big A, little A, all of these different. Th and they've, they've done much more complex versions of that as well. Um, but it's to show that there's these really, really distinct similarities between actually experiencing, seeing the world, smelling the world, tasting the world, tasting the world uh, <laughs> and, uh, and and imagining these things. And so they're it kind of gets back to the, these limitations and these restrictions is that we're we're imagining what we've experienced, what we've seen, what we've kind of touched and felt and seen, right? Uh, and it gives the perceptual world some type of like realness, right? That's what a lot of the debates were early in philosophy where that like, is the mental world kind of constrained by reality? And, and yes, it is, right? Yeah, and it's I think the the extreme of this uh, that that we've all experienced is dreaming, because it seems so real in the dream. The moment you wake up, you realize, oh yeah, I don't. I, that's not my job. I don't even know these people. <laughs> I don't know what this situation was, but it seems perfectly real in that dream. And especially the the sensory world seem can seem really vivid, um, but it's all just being generated from within it's there's no sensory input or motor output during a dream and uh so anyway that that's just kind of the a tangent but but the extreme version maybe of what we're talking about and i i wanted to highlight a little bit of what you said to andrew about uh low resolution right so when you imagine something it's not super high like it's not like looking at something real Right. It's it's kind of grainy. It's fuzzy. Some people are a lot better at it than others. Some people actually don't have the ability to, to visualize objects. Um, I think everybody has a certain sense of mental imagery in general, whether that's visual or auditory or uh, smell or whatever, uh, because that's how that's how memory a lot of the times works autobiographical stuff. But one of the things about it being low resolution, and this is where it gets kind of into the neuroscience of things, is that uh, there's a researcher named Thomas Nasalaris. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Uh, he came from Jack Gallant's lab, as did a lot of other really good neuroscientists. Uh, but he was working on these, these really um, heavy-duty computational models of the brain. And he had people for hours and hours looking at real things, imagining things, right? And he was trying to build this huge database of 
what's going on in the brain when we're actually looking at real things and what's going on in the brain when we're imagining those same things. Uh, and what he found was that the primary visual areas, so the areas of the brain that are processing really simple information, right? Just like lines and edges and corners, uh, they haven't really kind of filled in color yet or thought about motion or like uh, recognize that something is an object or anything like that. It's just really simple features. Those areas are really active when we're actually looking at something. But like I said earlier in the episode, perception's a building process, right? So all of those lines and edges get put together into corners and lengths and, and then eventually into objects. Uh, and that is happening along this kind of pathway of information processing, right? And so you have what are considered higher order perceptual areas where they're actually recognizing objects that are saying that is a water bottle, that is a cell phone, that is this. Those are the regions that seem to be more active when we're imagining things. And so the reason why things are really low dimension or low def uh, definition is because of the fact that we don't have the parts of our brain that fill in the detail, that are actually seeing the world, that are seeing the lines and the edges and, and where the contextual ends of things are. Uh, all we're doing is turning on kind of the idea of the object, right? And most of these are prototypical, right? When by the time we get to these higher order areas, these are areas that are categorizing kind of information based on similarities with other ones that we've seen, because we've seen lots of dogs. But when you imagine a dog, you don't imagine every dog you've ever seen, you imagine this kind of prototypical dog, right? This kind of low dimensional, uh, low def <laughs> dog, right? dog. The, the, yeah, exactly. The platonic <laughs> form of a dog. <laughs> um, but that kind of gives you some insight into into why they're greeny and also kind of kind of foreshadowing what we're going to get into is uh, how much time you can actually spend with them because you're not feeding it any detail. You're just kind of turning on this perception and it kind of fades away. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's so cool. Um to think about that, that we are just seeing kind of the, the idea of the object, as you put it, like, it's like a mm -hmm. more of like a gestalt rather than seeing like the individual <laughs> details and properties of something. Um, and you might be able to do that, but you have to actually mentally zoom in, uh, which mm -hmm. takes more effort. And there's some interesting experiments about that, but, um, maybe we won't go off onto that tangent. Um, and so, <laughs> Maybe before we kind of talk about the ways to use the this mental imagery, maybe we should talk a little bit about um, motor imagery, motor um, visualization, if you want to call it that. Um, so there's same same kind of principles at play here, where the activation of brain areas involved in motor movements and in, in movement of the body um, are active, although just like with vision, not all of them, especially not the ones that are actually sending the, the output to the uh, spinal cord or um, it's really these earlier, more kind of more abstract uh, or these regions more involved in what is the movement? What uh, are the individual movements that are needed to execute this rather than uh, the ones that are like, okay, muscle now contract. Uh, so, yeah, so some of these are like the supplementary motor area and the premotor cortex. Um, and the, I guess the there is some 
some evidence of the primary motor cortex activating too. But um, regardless, just this this principle that these these motor regions are activating when we're imagining ourselves going through some kind of movement. Like if you're practicing that golf swing or like a basketball free throw, um, it's not that, I mean, it's, it, 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 it's kind of obvious that it's not the regions that are actually involved in the motion itself that are um, active, but the ones that are sort of more involved in like planning it and, and uh, yeah, more of this like abstract motor activation that's kind of a weird way of putting it somewhat the way that I, I really like to think about this is uh so with language we have kind of a, a lexicon right we have a dictionary of like all the possible words uh and our brain i mean we have i think what like sixty thousand words that we can use and remember or whatever and our brain has some type of like web structure of kind of remembering all how all of those words are connected to one another and all of those kind of things well that language came on the scene a lot later than movement did right like the brain was initially like for movement like they, we were moving through the world we were exploring the world uh and as the brain evolved it built up kind of a dictionary of movements of the possible movements that i can do and i mean they've they've mapped this out with uh with apes with doing a lot of the the mirror neuron work and things like that uh where we have kind of a dictionary of grasping motions and like moving my arm this way or reaching up and doing this uh there are areas of the brain that represent all these different types of ways that i can move and just like we have this kind of dictionary of words, we can put those movements together into sequences. Um, and when we're actually moving through the world, we're activating these and we're putting them together into new sequences. But just like Andrew said, we can use the kind of abstract version of these like dictionary forms of, of grasping, of hitting or swinging or whatever it is uh, to put together this fluid motion of what what is the kind of like ideal movement that I want to achieve? If you're trying to play an instrument, uh, if you're trying to get better at a sport or whatever it is, you're essentially stringing together all of these different types of motion that are possible. Um, and you're running through it in a way to try to make it as fluid as possible. Yeah. And then where, where mental imagery or a motor imagery can come in is where if you're, you're having trouble with one aspect of that, sequence that chain of movements that Taylor was just talking about. If you know, you get to the, you're dribbling on the court and you finally get to, to shooting, but every time you shoot, you, you know, you place your hand wrong on the ball. I don't play basketball, so I don't know <laughs> any of the terms. Shouldn't have chose this example, but um, regardless, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like you can get to that, that part that you're not doing right. And, and then use motor imagery when you're not playing basketball, when you're just resting to think through how to actually do that, that movement better. And then that actually creates changes in your brain that actually induces these kind of long-term uh, changes in the connections between neurons, um, at least in these, these kind of more abstract areas, although they're, Anyway, I, so it, it can it can create these these changes, and um, that can allow you to when you get on the court to actually execute that movement more in the way that you were uh, in you intend it to be executed, um, rather than what happens just habitually when when you're playing. So it's like using this intentional, deliberate thought and motor simulation to actually change 
the like patterns of activity in your brain so that when you get to the real thing, you're able to do it more efficiently and effectively. And reflect for a minute on what it feels like to actually to move, to to initiate action, right? To to shoot a basketball or to swing a golf club or whatever it is. Your mind in that moment is usually on the end goal, right? The ball going into the hoop, the the golf ball going down the, the range, right? Uh, you're not in that moment actually thinking about all of the sequences of steps that go into that. As you go through those movements over and over and over again, you're starting to learn it. But while you're actually doing the action, you're usually not thinking about all of those individual components and how they all work together. That's where motor imagery can really be helpful is that you can step away and you can say, okay, instead of just focusing on what the end goal is, I really need to think about how my form needs to be adjusted, how each individual little movement that I'm doing uh, needs to be sequenced together in a different way. And in that moment, like Andrew was saying, instead of having like to, to think about putting your hand on the ball the right way or whatever it is, you just by thinking of where you want the ball to go, you've already told your body that whole sequence of steps that you want it to do. And so all you're doing is initiating that sequence, right? You're not thinking about how all of those things go together. You're just shooting the ball, but you've put the work in. And if you go back, we had a really good episode on like mastering skills, especially motor skills, uh, and got into the idea of like deliberative practice. Uh, the whole idea of deliberative practice is really focusing on like if you're dribbling and then you need your hand in the right part, like figuring out those pieces of the motor sequence that you do need to work on. Because experts in any kind of field, whether it's professional athletes or professional musicians or whatever it is, when they practice, they're they're practicing very specific things that they know that they need to work on. Yeah, and and I think there's an analogy there to when you watch someone else who's doing the movement that you want to do and trying to learn from them, there's something similar probably going on that as when you imagine yourself going through that, that correct movement. You're, you're, are, you know, you might even be doing a kind of motor imagery while you're watching someone else do that, that basketball shot that you want to master or whatever it is. Um, but anyway, yeah. So just to draw an analogy there. I remember I was, uh, I think I was like 13, 12, 13. I was super into rock climbing. Uh, and I was trying to do a dyno where you kind of like start on one rock and you jump up and you try to grab another one that's like way above you. Uh, and I had been trying for like an hour and I just like could not get this thing. And the guy that owned the gym came over and he said, I want you to sit right there on the bench and don't touch the rocks for another five minutes. I just want you to sit there and I just want you to think about what needs to happen for you to get from point A to point B. And I sat there and I just like closed my eyes and I like pictured myself going through the motion, catching it, right? Uh, I got back on, first try, boom, I hit it, right? And so there's there's a, a benefit in really kind of focusing in on on where you're going wrong and like what kind of things need to be be worked out. And in that moment, we have this incredible ability as humans to visualize all of this stuff because I, I really want to highlight like how incredible this is that we can disconnect our perceptual experience from actual sensory input right that we can create these simulations of what it actually feels like what it what it feels like to move what it feels like to smell or see or whatever it is because now we have this kind of rehearsal ground that has no consequences that we can go through in our head right yeah 
and and it uh it's like i like that you use rehearsal because it's not a um it's not a replacement for the real performance yep. for the real thing and that's one of these caveats that we really want to kind of harp on is that when we're talking about how helpful mental imagery mental practice can be um, it's not a replacement for the actual experience for the actual um, movement because you know like we're saying there's similarities in these brain activation patterns but they're not exactly the same and uh, you know even just down to the the movement of your muscles and the str the strength the different kind of uh muscle strength that you have to build up is obviously like with taylor's example with rock climbing one of the reasons i can i can't do that is because my <laughs> fingers would probably snap on on a lot of the uh, climbing because i don't climb at all and and it takes a lot of finger strength to do a lot of these moves and so th that's just to say that this real world experience is kind of obviously still necessary um but i just want to to uh, put that out there but let's um, think for a second like why that is right because the real experience has no feedback i mean the the imagined experience has no feedback right you can go through all of these imagined scenarios all you want but until you put the rubber to the road and actually like feel the rock or feel the golf club and and see how it hits the ball or how the ball moves that's what the body is is reinterpreting right it's bringing those error signals back in to really get a feel for how that simulation went right you rehearse this whole thing but like we've been talking about this whole time it's low definition right it doesn't have any of the contextual elements to it it's got no consequences right and so you have to experience consequences you have to run these simulations through the real world to actually see whether or not they're working and then the body is able to make adjustments accordingly yeah it's kind of like starting a company or running a scientific experiment like you can it's yep. good to have all these theories uh, and hypotheses and yep. uh, models of what's going to happen but until you actually you know put your product out into the marketplace or you actually run these experiments you don't know how it's going to go you don't know how the real world is going to interact with this so yeah feedback is key um but since we're on this uh motor imagery maybe we can highlight some of the um the the strategies the techniques that people can actually use and here i, I definitely want to credit um, dr andrew huberman from the huberman lab podcast um, he has a great episode on visualization that i've linked to in the description and um, so these these techniques come primarily from his videos on that yeah, you want to jump into sure. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so he um, really emphasizes that the what the research shows is that keeping the visualization very brief. So he says within 15 seconds or less um, is key. And you don't want it to be a super complicated movement that you're trying to do. Like we said, if it's if it's shooting a basketball, it should just be a really simple uh, shot, one shot that you are you're thinking about how to perfect. Um, and keep that visualization within 15 seconds. And then here's the part where I think most people probably don't uh, do what, what the research suggests is the best, uh, best way to do it, which is you're, you should do this 50 to 75 times in your head. So repeat it 50 to 75 times, 15 seconds each. So if you um, multiply that out, that is like, if, 25 to 37 minutes if you're going like 
it depends on how long your visualization is, but that's a long time to be sitting there and repeating this visualization over and over and over again in your head. And it's just this one thing. But this is where I think what where our conversation and where, where Huberman, um, his comments on this differ from what some of the kind of more woo folks might say, uh, which is like, this is hard work. This isn't just like imagining your success and then oh, you'll magically achieve it. It's like, this alone takes a lot of discipline and a lot of focus. And that makes sense because we're talking about changing these connections in the brain. I mean, no change doesn't happen without a little bit of pain. And I mean, the the top athletes in the world, they put this work in. They do this. Like you listen to Michael Phelps talk about visualizing. Uh, and I mean, it's a huge part of his regimen of actually practicing right is is sitting there for 20 minutes and visualizing his stroke visualizing what would he would do if something went wrong uh there's a great story about the i think it was like what the eighth gold medal that he won uh where he was doing the fly which is supposed to be like his his bread and butter and his his goggles started leaking uh and he still won that race, got a gold medal without being able to see anything. And a lot of it, when you listen to him talk about it, was was because of the fact that he he practiced with filled up goggles, but he also visualized a lot of these things that could go wrong, right? And so like I jump in the pool and my goggles are are messed up. Visualize how many strokes I need to do to get to the other side of the pool. Count those strokes, right? And he would go through these entire just like really lengthy visualizations uh, and it made him the most gold winningest <laughs> Olympian yeah. there ever was. Right. Uh, and, and there's stories like that across the professional uh, athlete world of, of people really spending dedicated mental effort time. And like Andrew said, uh, this is not just, and I think we're going to get to that in a minute, but the whole idea of just visualizing things uh, like the secret, like, Oh, I, all I, all I need to do is just think about things being positive and they will. Um, you you need to put work in there's there's a point at which like just doing the mental work is not enough you need to actually take the opportunities you need to put the work in you need to recognize when those things are coming to you yeah you have to you have to gather that real world data uh, yeah. in the first place just to actually make that simulation uh realistic and worthwhile um oh and one last thing i guess i wanted to mention about that is um that using kind of like labels, cognitive labels for whatever movement you're doing. So if it's a, a mm. basketball free throw, you want to call it free throw in your head. Um, and apparently this, this can help people to retrieve these programs that they're practice more easily when you actually get to the, the experience. So anyway, that's a, that's a little bit of detail there. That's, it's, it's kind of cool though. Uh, Cause I've, I've actually kind of thought about, um, memory in general how it's kind of it's almost like a google search uh and i think one of the reasons why we as humans have such incredible memory is because we can use language for search terms right we're like we come up with a word and that word is able to bring up a perception of an object like the ones that i mentioned earlier right if i say the word cell phone all of a sudden now you have this perception of a cell phone right you have this this symbol this language symbol that's able to search things out in the kind of repertoire of all of these signals in your brain. That's really cool. Uh, and what Andrew was saying is that like the research has capitalized on that and said like, if you're doing these mental rehearsals, then attach some type of symbolic label to it so that you can do your Google search in the moment and find that thing and retrieve it when you need it. 
Yeah, that is that is pretty fascinating. We're like giant search engines or <laughs> chat GPT or something. Um, so, okay. So I guess uh, another topic we can turn to outside of just the, the motor domain is kind of getting back to this idea of visualizing, um, but for more abstract goals, for things that are kind of further off in the future that you are trying to achieve and um, how we can use visualization to help us, uh, to help facilitate that process of pursuing and achieving a goal. Um, but again, like just remembering it's not a replacement for the real thing. And here um, I like to, I wanna just acknowledge that um, people might be thinking of like vision boards and, and just the idea of just imagining your ideal future and then just having that super clear in your head. And then that's going to somehow propel you to get there without uh, any other, any intermediate steps in between. Um, and that's kind of the, that's the trap of vision boards and of visualizing is that they can help you set the goal. They can help you see that long-term vision, that thing that you really want, this idea of this life or this goal that you're trying to achieve. But there's research again, this, I want to credit, uh, Huber, Andrew Huberman's podcast for, um, talking about this, that there are, um, there's research that shows that you may be actually less likely to engage in the behaviors that are necessary to achieving your goal. Uh, when you do this kind of like vision boarding type <laughs> of visualization, um, and so the key to getting past that is to not just stop with defining the goal, but to think about what are the actual more concrete, more and more concrete sub goals and actual action steps that you have to take to get to that goal. Um, and then what are the contingencies along the way? What might go wrong in trying to achieve this goal? So again, this gets to this point of like, it's not just, kind of a fun activity like it it can be like i'm not saying yeah, don't yeah. have fun with it but yeah. uh but realize that there is this kind of like a lot of cognitive work involved to really fully capitalize on visualizing in terms of achieving kind of more abstract career goals or romantic goals or whatever you might be going after yeah you don't want setting the goal to be the goal right because yeah. that's then your your brain is kind of giving up at that point, right? It's like it's like, oh, I just achieved it. I just like created this this wonderful artistic thing about my future. I'm done, right? Systolic blood blood pressure drops. We've seen that in studies with vision boards, which is like, okay, I'm good. I'm gonna relax now, uh, right? What we really want to do is we want to motivate ourselves to to go after that. Uh, and like Andrew was saying, that that takes really kind of visualizing the process uh, and and maintaining it not as like a I've finished, I've created the goal, but as something you're using that, that mental imagery as a way to, to keep you motivated to say that like, okay, I have this thing in my mind. It's not done, right? It's something that's going to keep me going down this path. Uh, and I think one of the really important things when you think about uh, visualizing the future, visualizing these vision boards is like Andrew was saying, you, you need to spend time visualizing the, the shortcomings, the shortfalls, the, the obstacles that are going to be in your way. That's a big part of like stoic philosophy and things like that. Uh, stoicism is, is a lot of mental imagery in the morning of like, what are all of the things that could go wrong today so that I can prepare myself for that? 
right? And then once you get there, you're like, oh, okay, I've already, I've already visualized this. I've already kind of expected to be stuck in traffic or to be this or to be that. Uh, and so when it happens, it's able to be regulated in a much more efficient way, right? You're not getting angry at the traffic. You're not getting angry at the, the people that you had to come in contact with uh, because you already rehearsed them, right? You came up with a plan. You came up with sub goals. Uh, and that's should not be un overstated. Like, that these big highfalutin things that you want to accomplish that you're putting on your vision board have a series of steps that need to be taken to actually get to. And if you're just getting that dopamine hit off of like talking about how cool the future could be, you're not actually taking the the steps and putting the work in. Yeah. And I think one of the, the traps, the reason that people stop with just the vision board, other than like, it feels good to imagine this great future and everything is that when you, even if you do make a plan, like if you just make, uh, you know, point A to, to point Z type of plan, that can kind of trick you into thinking that the, well, like a plan in itself is a way of in enhancing, increasing the likelihood that you will reach a goal. Like by definition, that's like what a plan is, is that you are, you are, outlining the steps necessary to actually get to that goal. So that alone is like the, the right first step, but it's just that a lot of people stop there and then they, they don't think about, okay, what are the critical points where um, like, what are the most likely scenarios that could happen at each of these critical junctures? And then what do I do if, you know, the, the uh, thing that has only like a 30% probability of happening actually happens, what do I do in that scenario? Um, does it throw my entire plan off or can I come up with some kind of contingency plan to, you know, create a new algorithm to get around mm -hmm. that? And uh, it's just really this idea of like, as the more that you enrich your plan with these uh, understanding of the, con the possible contingencies and where things could go wrong, it's just that the better plan you have, the higher the likelihood that you'll actually achieve what you're after. And visualization helps, right? <laughs> Seeing yourself at the end. And <clears throat> this is something like long bike rides I've done and things like that, uh, is that you have this this picture in your in your mind of like what it's going to feel like at the at the end of the race or whatever it is. Uh, that for me, I, I don't know where the research is at on that. But like, I know for me that that helped to kind of distract me in the moment and to give me some motivation to, to keep going through the steps. Uh, I know some of the work with like uh, Emily Basiletis, uh talks more about kind of visualizing those sub goals within the the track that you're doing. Right. Uh, and I think I've talked about that a little bit before, but uh, is that when I was on this really long bike ride that I didn't expect myself to be on, <laughs> when I thought about how far I had to go, my body was starting to give up. Right. Like, as soon as I looked up and saw how far the mountain was, my legs were like, no. Uh, but if I put my head down and I just visualized like, okay, all I need to do is this this couple of steps, right? Uh, sub goals. I need to get here. I need to get here. I need to get here. Uh, visualizing those those little steps that needed to be taken, that allowed my muscles to, to know that like, I didn't just have these like high expectations of them, right? That uh, if you can just get there, I'm going to give you a reward. If you can just get there, I'm going to give you a reward. And you get these like dopamine hits, right? Uh, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. And that maybe has to do with, I think there's uh, some research that shows like, if you think you're closer to the goal, you'll kind of work harder or, or maybe have like higher motivation to continue what you're doing to get there. If you can see the finish line, 
you're you're less likely to just give up because mm -hmm. it's it's right there but maybe you know to speculate a bit if you're if you're imagining that finish line maybe it feels like it's a little bit closer and kind of gives you that extra oomph to keep going <laughs> um yeah similar story my my friend uh i i don't even know who this is but it was some ultra runner who was running a ridiculously long race like they do and uh he he had in his mind that uh, the end of the race was in this i think it was like a stadium and they ran into the stadium and uh, he thought in his mind, okay, that's the end. And he was like at the head of the pack or near the head of, uh, of the race. <laughs> and uh, in his, like he had so concretized that that was the end of the race that when he got there into this building, he like collapsed and it was done. And he, he like just couldn't <laughs> get himself to get up. And real, really, it was like you had to go through the building and get to the other side. And then that was the end of the race. <laughs> so there can be like uh, some... I don't know, trade-offs there to, to visualizing if you don't have the right end goal in mind. No, and I think that that, that really plays into something that I uh, kind of wanted to touch on through this was this communication that you're having with your body, right? In, in that moment that Andrew was just describing, like we don't have complete control over our muscles, right? We're able to, to kind of have this, this level of communication that like I as the executive know where I'm going and, uh, and like there is an end to this, this brutal thing that I'm doing <laughs> to my muscles, right? Uh, but they, they want to stop, right? They want to relax. And there's this, this thing that we can do where we can actually communicate with our body through this kind of mental imagery. Uh, and there's this really interesting work that shows that like, uh, if I just showed you the words like the sky is blue, uh, that's not really going to do a lot. But if I have you like imagine a blue sky, then you're actually going to like feel you're going to have some type of emotional experience that's different than just like seeing the word the sky is blue. Right. And that was something that kind of piggybacking on our on our last episode of this idea of like really getting in touch with how we can communicate with the body is that the body understands these perceptual experiences. Right. And so let's say like, for instance, I mean, imagery is used all across like the therapeutic world. Right. Um, and it's a lot of the times it's, it's about kind of creating this this kind of perceptual place. Right. Something that feels safe, that feels good, that feels whatever. Right. Uh, and a lot of the times we're we're ramped up like we're in a fight or flight mode or we're in this or we're in that. We can use these images to then like put our body in a different place right? Imagine that we're in this beautiful, like, waterfall and a pond, and we're sitting on the beach, and there's sun that's beating down on us, but it's it's not too hot. It's like just the right temperature. And we're just kind of relaxing and listening to the waves kind of lap, right? Just me just talking about that probably gave you some type of mental image that produced a feeling in you, right? Your, your cells in your body don't know what's going on in the outside world. And when you engage in this type of imagery, when you actually bring these things to the forefront and turn on these, these perceptual things, it's creating an experience for your entire body. Uh, and the cool thing, like we've talked a lot about just like visual imagery or about like auditory, there are parts of our brain, right? If you track the, the process of information as it flows through the brain, visual information is processed just as visual information first. Visual cortex, it creates objects, right? But then there are parts of the brain that are considered association cortex where it starts to get mixed with other senses, 
right? So something that I'm seeing gets mixed with how that thing actually sounds and how that thing feels and how it, and in order to, to have those types of perceptions, those are really high order areas of our brain. These integrated perceptions, these integrated mental images. And like the more that you can bring into that situation, the more you can create this whole scenario that your whole body gets involved in. Like that's that's incredible to me, just thinking about mental imagery, like the the effect that it can have on our entire physiology to to change the way that hormones are being released, to change the way that that relaxation is happening in different muscles, to change the way that that resource resources are being allocated to either the stomach or to the muscles or wherever it is. Like just creating this safe space in our head allows our body to completely transform itself. Yeah, that, I think my favorite example of that that I've heard is like. So you said this earlier on in the episode, but yeah. everybody just listening, just imagine taking a nice ripe lemon and just taking <laughs> a big, huge bite out of that and just imagine what that would be like. And you can almost feel your your salivary glands like excreting saliva. Uh, sorry to put that image in your mind, but but it's just to show that there is this real effect of imagination on the body and on these uh, these processes that Taylor's just talking about. And I actually just came across a paper this morning that was talking about how episodic future thoughts, so a lot kind of what we're talking about here, thinking about uh, particular situations in the future, experiences that may happen in the future, um, can engage brain regions like the amygdala and the insula and the ventral medial prefrontal cortex, which we've talked about before. All three of these regions are really involved in emotion and arousal and uh, valuation and pleasure. And so uh, there's also, I don't know if you know, this is a real technical term, but like emotional imagery or, or something like that, that kind of comes online as a result of these, these perceptual images that we can generate from within. Because we, we can't we can't talk ourselves into those feelings, right? We can't just like tell our body to to salivate or tell our body to to feel good or whatever. Like, um, just like we can't really explain to other people how we feel, right? I've done these really interesting kind of visualization techniques and kind of my own therapy and things like that um, that really kind of contextualize like feelings and sounds through images and things like that, where you can actually interact with them in a different way. I wouldn't be able to explain to you kind of how my back feels or how my, these pains that I'm having or whatever. Um, but I can, I can draw them. I can, I can put color to them. I can, I can turn them into a, a visualization that I can actually manipulate in my mind's eye and can use to kind of communicate what I want to back and forth with my body. Uh, and that's something that I think is, is really powerful when you think about this, this mental imagery. And I mean, it's ubiquitous across all of these different disciplines with, with mindfulness, with uh, like uh, acceptance and commitment therapy type stuff. Like it comes up in all of these different domains as being a really powerful modulator of our emotional experience. Uh, and they've shown like uh, people that have nightmares, um, if you spend time during the day kind of visualizing those nightmares and taking control of them, uh, there was a really interesting story I heard uh, of someone that was working with uh, a client that had PTSD and was having nightmares of something that had happened. And uh, in the during the day, they were visualizing like shrinking the people that were coming after them. They were having this this mental image of just like making them really small. Um, and there were 
there were points uh, they they kind of came back to him later on and said, you know, I, I had a dream and I found out in the dream that I was able to shrink them, uh, that I had this control when it art, art, when it started to happen. And so in these moments, we're using this mental imagery as, as a way of kind of training our body, training our mind, how to react in the future, how to regulate in the future. Yeah. And we, we had an episode where we talked about pain and chronic pain <laughs> specifically mm -hmm. and how oftentimes what, what chronic pain is, is it, it can be, you know, the result of, of real tissue damage that's just ongoing and, and continually like stimulating those nociceptive, those pain sensing neurons. But oftentimes it's just that the brain has almost learned to continue to feel pain uh, in the absence of this, uh, this nociceptive, this input to the body. So um, there's some research, uh, this guy, um, Michael Moskowitz, who has uh, done, he, he's a, a medical doctor, and he's done a lot of work with, with chronic pain patients in trying to use visualization to, like Taylor's saying in, in a different context, but uh, shrinking the, the sensation of pain by visualizing it. And it's actually really interesting. A lot of time what they'll do is they'll have this he has this map of the brain with like nine different regions that are involved in pain perception. And then he'll have patients um, imagine like, okay, when I'm, when I'm feeling this, you know, whatever it is, pain in my knee, um, that's, that's the result of the activity of these regions. And I can, I can shrink that activity down um, using, it, it's more complex than I'm, I'm letting on right now, but the basic idea is to use this process of visualization to influence brain activity to kind of shrink that, uh, that experience that they're having. <laughs> because in many ways, chronic pain is a kind of visualization, well, not visualization, but it's, a, it's a, this like quasi-perceptual experience that we're kind of talking about. So you can use other quasi-perceptual experiences to change that one. Yeah, you can't just yell at your your back to stop hurting. That would be that'd be nice. Um, and, and I've I've had I've had experience. So I have I have a lot of uh, I had a really bad snowboard crash like ten years ago, cracked like three ribs, and still have really bad back pain from it. Um, and I've had I've had situations just like you were talking about. Uh, I've gone through kind of uh, visualization techniques of of like turning the pain into something that is pictorial, that is something that I can see, something that I can manipulate, something that I can communicate with. Um, and going through the process of, of sh and in those moments, and you actually get some, some relief after the session too. So like, uh, I'll, I'll leave and I'll be like, oh my gosh, I have like no pain right now. And it'll last a little while, but it's something that I think that we've tried to highlight through a lot of the episodes that we've done is that it's not just a one and done kind of thing. Like it takes hard work and I'll be the first to admit that like once life gets crazy, like those go out the window and you're not putting the work in to, to kind of bring those visualizations to the forefront and use them to actually benefit you in the way that you can. Uh, we all need, I think, a little bit more self-care time. <clears throat> yeah, well, <laughs> we're kind of nearing the end here, but um, one thing I wanted to mention, I guess we're in this sort of uh, mental health and, and well-being uh, space right now. And I just wanted to, to note that um, if you've ever heard of a, a form of meditation called loving kindness or metta meditation. Um, this is, I think, a really powerful way to use a form of visualization 
uh, to directly influence your emotional experience and your feeling of connectedness with other people. And loving kindness meditation uh, is this um, practice where people you close your eyes and you get into kind of a, a mindful state, a, a meditative state, just noticing the feelings in your body and the flow of your breath, uh, much like you would do in a normal mindfulness meditation. But then often uh, the way that it's done is the uh, the guide will tell you to picture someone who you love, someone who you care about, someone who brings, uh, who, who is loving and kind to you or someone who you just admire in the world and thinking about that person and then imagining wishing that person well, wishing them happiness and peace and uh, to be free from suffering and kind of over and over imagining actually doing that. And then what kind of change that would have on their facial expression, on their feelings and, and noting that, noting those changes and then using that, that image and like applying it to yourself. So applying that, uh, saying those same kinds of wishes to yourself, like, may you be happy, may you be peaceful. Um, then what you can notice is that when, when you're wishing someone else that you really care about that, that kind of state, that, that goodness, um, they, like you can feel a change in your own body, uh, your own emotional state can start to shift. And then when you can quickly sort of transition that to yourself, uh, it has this kind of, uh, honestly, like from my perspective, I've, I've done this for a couple of years and it's um, a pretty like profound effect on your, your immediate emotional experience, but then also just how you interact with other people. And there's some really uh, great research on this showing that it can uh, increase positive emotions and uh, people's uh, feeling of connectedness with others. And I think really important thing is to reflect on the fact that it wasn't this 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 thing that was outside of you like you you created a perception in your head an imagination in your head and it changed the way your body felt it changed your physiology it changed the way that cells were communicating in your body like that was you doing that uh, and I think that's really important to reflect on after the fact that it wasn't just this meta uh, mindfulness practice. It wasn't this external thing like you did the work. You created those perceptions. You created all of that that made you feel good. Uh, and you have the power to do that. So, yeah. Well, maybe that's a good place to end this episode. Um, <laughs> Yeah, thank you everybody for for tuning in again to the social brain. Um, I saw this comment from Bruce in the chat. He said he missed it. He's going to watch it again from the beginning Thanks, uh, Bruce. when it's over. Yeah, thank you. We always appreciate everybody watching it while we're live and and after as well. And if you do want to support us, uh, one great way to do that is to uh, subscribe to both of our channels. I'm Sense of Mind, and uh, Taylor is the Cellular Cellular Republic. <laughs> and uh, like these videos, um, comment if you want. Also, uh, to do a little bit higher impact uh, financial support, you can go to patreon.com slash the social brain, or you can scan this QR code link that I'm pointing to, uh, and that'll take you there. And you can um, kind of donate at whatever level you want. And um, we would greatly appreciate that because it helps us to keep doing this, keep growing in the future and making this better and uh, but any support all your viewership is extremely uh, highly appreciated so thank you
yeah thanks for tuning in uh and we hope that we can keep doing this because we enjoy doing it absolutely all right well we will catch you guys next time and uh yeah have a good one